Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. All right, everyone. Welcome. Good to see you all. I was, I was wondering how many people would be here today. This many. This many. This is exactly the amount of people that the Lord determined that we're going to be here. Um, we're going to get into the message in a moment, and I think you will... Uh, I wrote this message earlier in the week, uh, which I don't normally do, so I finished it up and then everything happened this week, and I hope that you'll see that there's, it's maybe a little bit serendipitous uh, what we're going to be talking about today. Um, but I wanted to say something, um, and I'm going to try to choose my words very carefully, um, which isn't my strong suit. <laughs> because I got opinions, um, but I have to say something, you know what I mean? Like, we have to name things as they come, um, and this is the thing that's been burning on my heart uh, this week especially, that I, child sacrifice is alive and well in this country, and we've just rebranded the gods that we worship. Uh, now, before you get excited about that, wait until I talk about it. Um, we like to think that we're evolved creatures and that society has moved beyond all the petty gods of our ancestors, uh, the pagan gods um, that demanded child sacrifice and that we're now rational creatures, um, that we've, we've evolved, we've gotten better. Um, but I think a lot of those gods are still very much alive and well. And we still worship them through human sacrifice without naming them, which makes them more dangerous in a way. Um, and I'm not just talking about school shootings. When I think back um, several weeks ago with the conversation around abortion in this country, and I think about a lot, but not all, of the rationale on, on either side of the argument about abortion, I hear a lot of child sacrifice language. When I hear a lot of the conversation around guns in this country, I hear a lot of language about child sacrifice. When I think about the fact that we ran out of baby formula, something that was only supposed to happen in communist societies, there's the big scare. The big scare of communism and socialism is, oh, it'll be a disaster. Um, we run an economy and support an economy that would take such a risk that our children, and especially the poor children of our country, are the ones that are most uh, targeted, um, I see child sacrifice. And I think we idolize so much our individual rights as Americans. And we have such a narrow focus on these are my rights, and that's the end of a conversation. Um, that it's the most vulnerable among us who end up paying the price. And that we will very happily sacrifice children, sacrifice innocence for the sake of our rights. And we get to this place where these conversations are so incoherent that if I talk about bodily autonomy or I talk about choice or I talk about freedom, you don't know what conversation I'm even having. 
I could be talking about any number of things that are happening in our society. Because we have, and I am, again, as an American citizen, I am very glad for the rights that we have in this country. But when we turn it into an idolatry, where all we make these conversations about is our personal rights, we have missed the mark. And what we end up doing is dehumanizing the innocent. We end up dehumanizing those who are going to pay the price for our continual fight for rights. And what do I see? I see the goddess Aphrodite, the goddess of erotic love, who insists that sex is a right without the conversation of responsibility. I see the god Mammon, the god of the economy, who we continue to worship with our dollars and our time. No matter how many uh, poor or oppressed people we have to overcome, I see the god Ares, the myth of redemptive violence that believes if we just have more guns, if we have a larger military, maybe then we will feel safe. I see a country where there have been 212 mass shootings this year alone. And I do not think this is anywhere, anywhere near God's desire for us. May God have mercy on this nation. In every category. And when we pick and choose, we're actually choosing just to perpetuate the gods that we would prefer to worship because they give us what we want in the name of individual rights. This week, this picture circled around uh, in the news. Daniel's defense is the, uh, the company that created the gun that was used in the shooting on Tuesday. And eight days prior to the shooting, they tweeted this image out of a toddler holding a semi-automatic assault rifle. And attached to that image is a very well-known scripture from the Old Testament. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. And throughout their website, there are countless references to scripture, guns, and scantily clad women. And this is demonic. And I mean that in a very specific way. This is demonic. And someone said to me when I posted this, it's like, oh, are you just uh, you know, upset about um, advertising? I said, yeah, I'm pretty upset about advertising. But it's never just advertising. Because it's telling us a story. And when our holy scriptures, when our precious scriptures as Christians are used to sell weapons that have one specific intent, it is demonic. It is demonic in the same way that Satan in the desert tempts Jesus by quoting to him scriptures, because the devil knows the scriptures very well, but manipulates the meaning to deviate us from the heart of God. And when we use scripture to defend what we think that we deserve out of life, we are subjugating ourselves to demonic oppression. May God have mercy on this country. And if you are a follower of Jesus, you need to start thinking like a follower of Jesus first. 
To paraphrase Stanley Howard, whilst most Americans cannot read the Bible because they are Americans before they are Christians, where is your true allegiance? Are you an American before you're a Christian? Whatever your opinion is on abortion, do you use the same talking points from a Republican standpoint or a Democratic standpoint, or do you try to do your best to speak from the standpoint of Jesus? Whatever your opinions are on guns and assault rifles and et cetera, et cetera, do you speak first as a Republican or a Democrat, as a progressive or a conservative, or do you speak as a Christian first? Because until we're able to do that, we continue to prop up these little gods that demand human sacrifice. And we worship a God of life. And we are ve- it is very right for us to be called out for our pro- hypocrisy as Christians to not be thoroughly pro-life from beginning to end. We deserve that because we have not done a good job. Now, of course, these issues are far more complicated, nuance upon nuance. But if we miss the core values there, the core things that we're called to, what it is that we believe about God, what it is that we believe about life, we don't have much to say. And our witness becomes tainted by things like this. May God have mercy on his church. If you want to have more conversations about those things, my email is loy at citybeautiful.ch. <laughs> but we have to start thinking like Christians. We cannot keep going the way we have been. And we certainly cannot allow the imagery of our faith to be corrupted by those who pledge allegiance to other gods, whether they realize it or not. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to get to the message that I actually had for today. So Heavenly Father, on the eve of yet another tragic school shooting, We come to you to grieve and to mourn. But our grief is not like despair that believes that tomorrow will be just like today. Lord, we want to grieve in a way that we feel fully our feelings, but that we sow tears of sorrow so that they may reap joy. We grieve so that we might learn how to hope, that we hope in your kingdom, that we hope that the kingdom only advances in one direction. Lord, would you convict each one of us? Would you purge us of our idolatry? Because we have believed in lesser arguments about important issues that leave children on the brink of sacrifice. Convict us of our callousness. Convict us of our fear. Convict us of our um, obsession with power and our obsession with our individual rights. Purge us of our idolatry. so that we may live more into your kingdom 
today than we did yesterday. And may each one of us become a shining light, a hope to a hopeless world that we would so clearly and compassionately articulate your heart for your creation. That we can see genuine change in our country. May we never become so numb, so complacent, so defeated that we do not believe in the victory of Christ over the powers and the principalities that would keep us deceived and numb and powerless, that would keep us feeding them. We repent and we return to you, God of all hope and comfort. So may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So we're in this series called For the Sake of the World, and again, we'll see in a moment how it perhaps feels rather serendipitous um, that this is the message that I felt called uh, to, to preach this Sunday. I kind of had my doubts. I didn't know if this was going to be the right time. I finished it kind of early Tuesday afternoon, and then um, everything happened this week. Uh, last week, I spoke on... Um, Evangelism, kind of redeeming our idea of evangelism. We know what is inauthentic evangelism. We know about proselytizing and people standing on street corners and, and that kind of thing. We know about people who just try to legislate morality or whatever. And we know what's inauthentic, but we don't really have a good vision of what is actually authentic. And so this week, I kind of want to speak a little bit more about uh, justice work. And this, for the sake of the world, we're looking at evangelism, we're looking at missions, we're looking at justice work. And I, I actually want us to go back. Uh, to the book of Esther. So uh, how many of you were here a couple months ago when Steve basically like took us through the entire book of Esther? It was a whirlwind. It was wonderful. I highly encourage you to go back and to find um, that passage or that, that message and listen to it again. So he took us through the whole book. Uh, and what I want to do is kind of circle back around. We're going to be looking at uh, the entire fourth chapter of the book of Esther, because I think it gives us really good insight into um, our unique position in history today, um, and then how we're called to steward uh, the precious time that God has given us. So if you remember in the book of Esther, the backdrop is that the Jews are in exile in Persia. Most of them have been gathered up by the Persians and taken off into foreign lands. Uh, King Xerxes, he's got a queen, doesn't work out with her. He wants another queen. He finds Esther super hot, picks her. She's now in the, in the, uh, in the castle, uh, in the court. And uh, Haman, Steve, you got through to us somehow. We all remembered at least one thing. Um, Haman, who is uh, in the part of the court, convinces King Xerxes to eradicate all the Jews, and then they get tied up in bureaucracy, which again should speak very profoundly to the situation we're in today to go, gosh, I would love to do something, but paperwork, okay? Um, that's the backdrop to what's happening here. So we're going to meet Mordecai, who is um, Esther's either uncle or an older cousin, kind of her steward. We're going to meet Esther as she's kind of sitting in the palace, like in a position of privilege, 
Uh, and then there's going to be, of course, Haman, and we'll hear about Xerxes. This is Esther chapter 4, beginning in the first verse. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was a great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's eunuchs and female attendees came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her, and, she t and he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and all the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, Relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your families, your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. It's a fascinating little vignette of this story that Esther, because of her beauty, kind of gets swept up to a place of privilege, which explains a lot of our entertainment industrial complex, like people of beauty get swept up and us normies are kind of left uh, down here without a television show. Um, but Esther was in a, a position of privilege and power. She's in the ivory tower. She has all her attendants, all her eunuchs. How many of you have any eunuchs? Most of you have no eunuchs because you're not as attractive as Esther was. But her uncle Mordecai, he's He's in the dirt. He's in the mix. He's feeling the feelings of the city of Susa, especially among the Jewish inhabitants, and knowing this is a powder keg that's getting ready to go off. And so she's in her ivory tower of power and privilege. He's down in the mix among the people. And so he sends word to her and say, hey, you're the one that could actually do something about this. 
Now, just put yourself for a moment. Like, what, what do you think Esther is feeling in that moment? That overwhelming sense of, no, 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 you've got the wrong gal. Like, I don't think, I, that seems a pretty big ask. Like, not only am I risking my own life, but what if it doesn't go right? Like, what if, you know, the, the, the edict, and gosh, there's paperwork. Like, there's bureaucracy. Like, I don't know if we can change anything about this. How do you think perhaps Esther was discounting herself? Because she felt grossly underqualified for the task at hand. She didn't have, she feels like she doesn't have the resources, she doesn't have the time, she doesn't have the words, she doesn't know how things are going to work out. And I wonder for us today, when we see crisis after crisis, chaos after chaos, do you feel that way? Do you discount yourself and say, I don't, I don't know if I have, I don't, this is just so overwhelming. I don't know what I have to offer. I don't know what I'm capable of doing. Who am I to approach the king? But I love the way that Mordecai kind of rebukes her and really challenges her desire to hide away in her privilege and protect herself from the crisis that's going on among her people. He writes back to her and he says, listen, you think that you're not going to be affected by this because you're in your ivory tower with your eunuchs and everything's provided for you. But don't think that this isn't going to affect you. Don't think that this isn't going to be part of your story. You're not exempt just because you're living in the ivory tower. He says, this affects you because it affects us. What does that speak to us today? It says that you may have a hard time believing it, but you are not an accident in this moment in history. God has something for you to do today. That phrase that Mordecai speaks to Esther for such a time, you were, you were in this position for such a time as this. Like it's almost been parodied to the point where, again, for many of us who grew up in the church, we can't really hear the vitality and the power in that that Mordecai speaks to says, no, perhaps you are specifically in this position in life, at this moment in history, to be able to stand up and be counted among the faithful, to do something. And I think that that's what I hear so often from you, and I hear it within my own heart when all of these tragedies are arising in the world around us is that we feel like it's an accident for us to be here. Like we're the ones that aren't equipped. We don't have the resources. We don't have the time. We don't have the energy, whatever it might be, to actually do something. And I think the challenge to all of us today, and this is God calling you out, he's saying, I put you at this moment in history for a very particular reason. You are here for such a time as this. Because God thought of you before the creation of the universe. He had you in mind. And he knew exactly when he was going to bring you on the scene. And I think a lot of times, we have this conversation around privilege. And I think it's very popular today to think privileged people equal bad, and unprivileged people equal good. We are the most privileged people, perhaps, that the world has ever seen as Americans. As I said, my favorite rapper, uh, Homeboy Sandman, said, we are, the, we are the 99% locally, but we're the 1% globally. 
So for all of us, we're like, oh, I just, I don't know if I have. And, you know, we get in, we're in an impoverished mindset, which is pretty laughable to the rest of the world. And so it often gets, there's this kind of shame that's attached with being a privileged person. So we have to divest ourselves of as much privilege as possible to prove that we're good people. I think it's actually far more subtle and more interesting than that. And this is what I see in Mordecai's challenge to Esther. He says, you're a privileged person. You have privilege. You're in an ivory tower. You have eunuchs. You have everything you need. Are you going to allow that privilege to be a curse that prevents you from doing the work that God is doing in the world around you in the name of your individual rights, in the name of your comfort, in the name of your um, emotional capacity, whatever it might be? Are you going to allow your privilege to be a curse to you? Or are you going to allow privilege to become a blessing? Are you going to allow the love of God to flow through the privilege that you have been gifted with in your position, in your resources, in the time that you have? Are you going to allow those things to become the vehicle by which God might administer love into the world around us? Is your privilege going to be a curse or a blessing? I thought about this a couple years ago when I got my citizenship um, in this country. And it was, a, it was a very powerful day. It ended up, it was, a, it was a kind of national refugee day. And so there's, you know, 30 or 40 of us that are um, taking the oath of office, which again, the number two thing, well, I had to cantaloupe watermelon my way through it, but was like, I will hereby abdicate all allegiance to any foreign principalities or powers, um, which I still have my British passport, so Queen Lizzie, she's still got my heart. Um, <laughs> But the second thing was, and I will take up arms on behalf of the United States military when it's asked of me. And I actually got in a fight with my uh, um, kind of immigration guy because I didn't want to say that. I was like, I want to have a religious exemption. She's like, just say it. I'm like, I can't just say it. He's like, listen, it's like World War III. Like people have, like they're entering Orlando, like, which is never going to happen. Just say it. And I'm like, ugh. So I just went. Ha-ha-ha, you didn't get me yet, Uncle Sam. <laughs> but it was amazing. In that moment, they, they were like, anybody stand up who's a refugee, you know? There's a couple people from Venezuela. Um, There's a person from Iran, somebody from Syria. And it was like, oh, my gosh, wow. And I felt like a dud because I'd been sitting on a golden goose for, like, 25 years at that point. It took me forever to get my citizenship. And I was like, oh, I don't know. I don't know if I want to do that and all this kind of stuff. And I, talking to immigrant friends of mine who are having a much harder time than I did, and then to sit in this room with these refugees, I was like, man, what am I doing? Like, I'm going to just, like, be so, like, self-involved and, like, prideful. Like, well, I blah, 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 blah. And I, I have the ticket to become a citizen in a way that a lot of my friends don't and a lot of these immigrants, and seeing the tears in their eyes because of what it meant for them to become citizens here. And so I met a resolution of the Lord that day. I said, I want to do whatever I can to help other immigrants get what comes so easily to me. And so two weeks later, um, I went to uh, the post office over there on Edgewater to turn in my application for an American uh, passport. Okay, So I got all my paperwork. 
I'm going up, getting ready to do my passport. And there's a, there's a young lady, uh, she's from Venezuela, and her mother, and a five-month-old baby. And they're trying to get the passport for the five-month-old baby. And none of them speak English. And the one guy who works at that post office that speaks Spanish was gone that day. And so the lady, she's getting really flustered. She's like, you have to take this oath. You have to, and they don't speak any English at all. And I'm like, what's that, Lord? Yes, I will do thy bidding. So I went over and I began to translate and kind of help her. Like, you have to stay, you have to stand in front of them and say, like, I promise that all of this is accurate and, you know, without coercion and so on and so forth. Help them. They move along. And then there's this old Cuban couple behind me and it's the same thing. And poor Daniel's just sitting in the corner. Like, he just wants to go to lunch. (laughs) And there I can see them stumbling over it. And I'm like, what's that, Lord? (laughs) Yes. Just, I'm just, at this point, I'm just glowing. I'm just radiating the Shekinah glory of God, you know. <laughs> People can't look at me because I'm so holy. And um, I go over and I begin to help this couple. And it turns out, if I understood correctly, they're divorced, but they still sort of live together. They're trying to get her, her passport so she can go home. And he's filling it out for her, for her, okay. And so I was like, he's like, what does this line say? I said, uh, name. And he goes, my name? I went, no, her name. Oh, okay. So he writes in her name. And it comes like, okay, what's the next one? It says address. And he goes, my address? I'm like, no, her address. Like, it's her, it's her application. She's the one trying to get the password. So I help them. We go out into the, the parking lot. And then this couple comes afterwards, like, thank you so much. And they wanted to pay me for it. I'm like, no, honestly, like, I made this deal with the Lord. And this is what's happened. And so there's like been moments like that in the past couple of years where there's been opportunities for me uh, to, to help those coming behind me. For example, like as a pastor, there's a real kind of theological, moral conundrum with voting. Like how do I vote? And so what I came down to is like I have a friend who is uh, a DACA kid, you know, the DREAM Act. Like he was brought to this country when he was little basically abandoned by his mother. He can't leave the country or else he'll never get back in, but he can't get citizenship. He can't, you know, gain, gain that kind of immunity. So I decided, like, well, whatever, whoever's in office, it's going to obviously affect him a lot more than it is me, so I'm just going to vote however he tells me to do it, okay? So there's been all these interesting things in my life where I recognize, like, man, I have this privilege of coming here very early on, of being able to take citizenship, and that privilege could come, become a curse where I could just enter into this self-preservational mindset. I could stay in my own ivory tower and I could say, well, the rest of those immigrants, they just got to work hard and they just got to do whatever they got to do in order to get here because we fought for it. I was five years old. I didn't fight for anything, you know? Or I could say, wow, like I have this amazing position God has given me and I could actually use that to bless other people. So for you, You're privileged, and you are privileged. If you're sitting in here, you are a privileged person. That's a neutral statement. Doesn't mean anything good or doesn't mean anything bad. Are you going to use your privilege to continue to perpetuate your own personal empire that you just don't have the time, or you would love to give resources, but gosh darn it, you just don't have enough, or whatever it might be? Are you going to continue to live that temptation that Esther had to just hide and feel overwhelmed? Or are you going to allow God to lead you in a place where your privilege actually becomes something that that could change the trajectory of history? And I think for you discerning your calling, it means taking stock 
of this moment in history that you live in and believing you're not here by accident. You could have been born in 1066 in England, which wasn't a great year for the English, um, depending on which side of... Uh, oh, you guys don't know your history, sorry. So in 1066, the Normans invaded England and destroyed the Saxons. Did anybody know that? Okay, good. All right, so you were paying attention. Um, you could have been born at that point, and you weren't. You were born for this moment. And it's not an accident. This is when God intended for you to be here. So it requires a certain sense of courage for you to look out the window and to see what's happening around you. And rather than going, oh, I just don't have the time, the resources, I feel overwhelmed, this is like way too much. What do I have to offer to the moment? Now that being said, because if you look out the window, it's a storm, a very particular kind of storm. I'm not allowed to say it's a storm. There's a lot happening. And we have more information coming at us now than ever before. You know, a couple generations ago, like you mostly knew local things and you, had, you would hear about things that were happening nationally or internationally, but at a very steady stream, perhaps even take a couple of days. Now we're just so instantaneously stimulated by all of this stuff. And so it can feel overwhelming just with the sheer volume of crisis. And I think all sorts of causes will demand your attention, but you only have capacity to care deeply about two or three of them. And I want that to set you free, okay? There are all sorts, and that's, and that's the way that social media works. It's the way that a lot of modern justice movements work is you have to care about my thing as much as I care about my thing, and if you don't care about my thing as much as I care about my thing, then you're evil, and how about this one? How many of you feel this pressure? You have to develop a fully formed understanding of a problem and develop a solution within 24 hours or you're on the wrong side of history. How many of you feel that one? Right? And you have to care about all of it all the time. We call this rage porn. Our new cycle, it's so vicious because we've never been exposed to so many things so rapidly. But unfortunately, what happens is it's pr we're pressured that you're supposed to care about all of it all the time. And to some degree, we should care about all things. I'm not, I am not saying that you silo and go, I only care about these things and I don't give a crap about any of those things. That's not what I'm saying. You remember we talked about last week with, uh, with Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. Like Jesus, it said that he had compassion upon the people because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Like, and it meant like he felt it in his gut. Like Jesus walked around, I think, perpetually with like an ulcer because he was so gutted by the pain that he saw in the world around him. Like we are to feel deeply and to feel the reality of these things that are happening around us. But there are only like two or three things that are actually the causes that God has called you toward. So how do you know? How do you know what these two or three things are? You need to pay very particular attention to what it is that breaks your heart. That's the biggest indicator of what you are called to care about and perhaps the specific causes that God is calling you to. And the things that break your heart, sometimes they will be things that arise out of your story with God, like we talked about Judea and Samaria last week. Like for me, like the causes of immigrants, that matters to me because those are my people. You know what I mean? Like that matters to me. And it matters to me in a way that I don't expect it to matter to you to the same degree. 
although I will harp on about it ad infinitum. But what breaks your heart? If nothing breaks your heart, you need to probably have a conversation with the Almighty. Or in even any of these conversations about abortion or about, like, gun laws or whatever, like, if it doesn't break your heart and you find yourself just rushing towards defending the status quo or defending the way things are and you're making it about, again, rights and laws and all, and it doesn't, like, move you on that deepest level, you probably need to actually check yourself. But what are the things in this world that they break your heart? Because that might be the invitation God is giving you to go, okay, I want you to get involved in that. I want you to figure out how do you contribute to that work. The other thing, what brings you to life when you do it? What's the thing? Like when you serve a particular group of people or you show up to a particular rally or whatever, like it, it's not that you're happy it's like you're content, you feel whole. That's another big indicator. Like what makes you come alive when you engage in that sort of work? Because that also is God perhaps saying, yeah, it should, because that's the thing that I've created you for. You know, a lot of times we talk about like waiting on the Lord for our calling is like we're waiting for a bus, right? And we're just like sitting in a kind of cosmic bus station we're just twiddling our thumbs and we're waiting. I think it's like, I think it's the 537. It's the 537 maybe. I don't know if it's the 530. And like, I'm just waiting on the Lord. We talk to people, what are you doing? Oh, I'm waiting on the Lord. How long have you been waiting on the Lord? Oh, like 15 years. I've been waiting on the Lord. That is not how this works. Waiting on the Lord is like God walks into the restaurant that you work at and you get him some water and you bring him a menu and you give him some time. And then eventually God's going to like order something. But the waiting is like that kind of waiting where you're attentive and you're aware and you're seeing what's happening. And then when the moment comes for you to act, you're ready. That's what it means to wait on the Lord. And if you want to know what your thing is, go out and do a bunch of stuff. Like serve in a bunch of places Go and do things that, like, work at soup kitchens or do um, packing events with feeding children everywhere or go to these different rallies. And, like, eventually something will happen to the core of you and you go, oh, that's it. That's the thing. That's my thing. But if you just sit in your room twiddling your thumbs waiting for the next conference to tell you what it is that you're created to do, it'll never come. you got to go out in the world and just start doing this is the bit that I was writing even before uh, this mass murder in Ovalde that for me, like, I care deeply about the gun epidemic in this country. Not because it's something that's affected me personally. I don't need it to. It's even like we talked about last week with Samaria. If we only make compassion about us being able to see ourselves in the lives of other people, that's a very selfish way to live. There's another form of compassion that comes alongside of broken people and goes, wow, I have no idea what that's like but I'm still willing to be with you in that. And I'm still learning. I'm learning how to act where I can. As a faith leader, I get invited uh, to, uh, to, to sign a lot of petitions and to show up for a lot of things. Um, and I keep learning. And I've been especially, uh, find it really impactful how uh, much in common Americans actually have on this issue. 90% of Americans, including 77% of Republicans, for all you Republican haters, are all about universal background checks. And most of us agree on red flag laws. And like 53, 54% of us 
agree with banning assault rifles. Like, this isn't controversial. Like, at least those things when it comes to the American people. But we see plenty of mammon worship, worship of the, the American dollar, that prevents anything from actually happening. And we say, well, I don't know what to do. That's, I hear that a lot. I just don't know what to do next. There's this thing called the World Wide Web. The jury's out if this is actually going to change anything. Theoretically, it carries all of humanity's collected intelligence. And you can go there and you can find people that are on the front lines and are doing this kind of work because you don't have to invent it on your own. You don't have to solve this by yourself. Isn't that nice? There's people that like, have developed their entire lives to doing that kind of work. It's, it's a, and you can also play a lot of games on the internet. So it's like, it's a win-win. You could, you could spend all day on the internet. It's amazing. But it's just like, what are those things that they, they break your heart? What are those things that they bring you to life? Listen to that. Listen closely to your own heart. Because that is the space where God is going to speak to you about what you are here to do. So I want to give you Two or three minutes, pull out your phone, bring up that note from last week where we talked about discerning our personal Judea and our personal Samaria. And if you, um, if you weren't here last week, you should go back and listen to the podcast and, and kind of spend that time in prayer. And this is what I'm going to ask you. What are two or three causes that I care about deeply that might be invitations from the Lord? What are the things that happen in the news that break your heart, that probably make you feel overwhelmed or ill-equipped, which is exactly the place where the enemy wants to rob you of your power and your privilege and convince you that you can't do anything about it. So that's what happens. The enemy steals, kills, and destroys. That, that moment where our hearts are broken, he comes in and he starts to turn, convert grief into despair so that we won't actually do anything. We won't act. But what are those things that they bring you to life when you do it? And you're like, oh my gosh, yes, those, those are my people. That's my cause. So I'm going to pray and give you a couple minutes. And I want you just to spend that time with the Lord discerning what are two or three causes that I care about deeply that might be invitations from the Lord. So God, we thank you. Like we, we sing in that song so often, break my heart for what breaks yours. And Lord, we're sorry that we Sometimes we become so calloused to human travesty um, that we resort back into um, our political ideologies or our economic ideologies or whatever it might be to defend ourselves from having to feel deeply. Like, we are sorry for that. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would alight on each of your dear ones here this morning. Would you show us the things that break our heart. Whether or not we have solutions to them, that's okay. They'll come. But show us what breaks our heart. Show us what brings us alive, makes us feel whole and complete when we enter into that work. That we might know why we are at this specific moment in history. So speak, Lord, for we're listening.
Amen. You can keep writing. Um, but I'm going to in- invite uh, the worship team to come back up. The kingdom challenge is to steward your time, privilege, and limitations so that you're ready for the work ahead. That's the challenge. Look at that, that privilege you have. It's not good, it's not evil, it just is. And whether or not that becomes a blessing or a curse is up to you. And we've talked about many times before the need for contemplation and action to go hand in hand. Um, I've talked to a lot of people that kind of lived through the 60s, which is maybe, you know, kind of the last major socially tumultuous time of the Vietnam War and the civil rights era and whatnot. And what happened for a lot of young people is that they were so involved and invested and, and doing this work seeking change that by the early 70s, they all burned out. Um, and what many of them did is they bought houses in the suburbs and, you know, just kind of got the job for 30 years. And they just like, they were just totally, they were a shell. We can uh, turn off the emotional music. <laughs> Brian Eno, I really, I love it. You know, that's one of my favorite songs in the world, but can't find myself thinking. I'm just so peaceful, you know? Um, action without contemplation means that you're going to burn out real quick. And that's what's happening for a lot of you when you feel that exhaustion from, you know, whether it's the, the possibility of Roe v. Wade being overturned, or it's the war in Ukraine, or it's, uh, it's all this stuff that's happening this week. Like, you feel exhaustion because you've made it all an external exercise. You know, watching social media and doing this, doing that, and you haven't spent time in contemplation. Because what's the first thing that Esther encourages Mordecai to, to do? She says, we're going to spend some time fasting and praying before I meet with the king. And again, this week, I think very rightly it is being thrown in our faces, thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers, that doesn't do anything. I, we deserve that. But it doesn't mean that we stop thinking and praying. Okay? Thoughts and prayers should lead us to action. One of the theologians, Miroslav Wolf, that I've been really into recently, um, spoke about how deep a hypocrisy it is for us uh, to pray about things that are happening in the world and then to do nothing about it. Or as Pope Francis has said, you pray for the poor and then you feed them. That's how prayer works. And so we don't stop praying. We, in fact, it's necessary and it's vital for a long-term life of action. If you don't cultivate that deep interior sense of, of contemplation, your action will burn out. But if you only have a life of contemplation without any action, what's the point? Number two, um, you need to pace yourself. Like you are incapable of caring about everything all the time. And I think the more that you're able to focus in on the specific things that God has put on your heart, um, you will begin to see how other people care for the other causes. And again, there's this amazing image within the people of God, within the church, where we see how broad our scope is of what it is that we're being called to. Um, so you have to pace yourself. I think, I'm trying to think of how to say this very carefully, um, the least effective call to action 
is going to be the one when there's a crisis. Okay, what do I mean by that? I mean, you know, it was almost two years to the day after George Floyd's murder, and there was a huge upcry uh, for, you know, like a racial reconciliation in this country and racial justice and whatnot. And, and everybody was doing the posts, and everybody was investing in the things and doing the thing and whatever. Six months later, how many people were still doing the work? That's what I mean. It's like we're so motivated by what we're feeling that when we feel the brokenness or we feel the pain, we might do something then, but then it fades. And then we go, oh, I would totally do something this month, but I really have to whatever. And that's, I think, what's so problematic in our culture today is that rage porn keeps us reactionary and all flustered when something happens, and then we're so exhausted by the time that the news media has moved on to the next issue, because you know something's going to happen next week, that we forget about the thing that we cared about last week. And we don't have, we haven't developed a plan, like set monthly goals to learn something new about the issue that you care about. Set monthly goals to invest in doing something practically. You know, there was a really fascinating um, study a couple years ago about um, it was like serving the common good between Americans and Europeans. It said Americans are better heroes than Europeans. We're really good at running into a burning building when it's on fire, far better than Europeans would. And it's a lot of times it's the, the national story we tell ourselves, but Europeans are far better at being servants, that they will commit week in, week out, month in, month out, to just do the things that serve the common good. And I think that that's very, very interesting to me. We're really good heroes, and we need heroes, but we also just need servants, too. And so if we're only operating out of that emotional response that we have to tragedy, and then we burn ourselves out, and then we just wait for the next thing, we never develop the long-term vision that we need to actually make the kind of difference we need. And so you look around and you find who are the happy warriors? Who are the people that have been doing this work for decades? Like they're doing it in total obscurity. They're doing it when everything's moved on and they've kept on. They're deadly consistent with how they approach these issues. Those are the people that you need to learn from. And finally, um, well not finally, two more things. Bless your limitations so you can stay in the long haul. You gotta know yourself, you gotta know what you're capable of and what you're not capable of, and you can't do everything all the time. For me, when it comes to um, seeing something done about the gun epidemic, I have to ask myself frequently, if I don't see the change that I wanna see by the end of my life, has it still been worth it? And unfortunately, that's the way we think. It's like, oh, if I don't see anything change in six months, like, it's not, there's no point. Well, these are very complex issues for a reason, because they're gonna take the rest of our lives uh, to see anything happen. And you might not see what you want to see in your life. And finally, you got to be ready for disaster. Like nobody saw, well, some people did, but not many people saw the war in Ukraine coming. But are you spending so much time with the Lord in that space of contemplation? Are you invested in, in, in growing and developing this naturally outwardly focused look on life to, to see justice come that when something like that happens, you're ready to jump into action, you know? Like, even the way that we've set up our benevolence fund in this church, that whenever this, you know, there was this crisis, this refugee crisis in Europe, we were able to donate $6,500 
to the people that are doing the work on the front line because we had done the work beforehand. So when something happens, we just don't fall apart. We go, nope, okay, we got something to do. We got work to do. That's my challenge to all of you. So I invite you to stand. The question? Can you, yeah? I think a lot of times it also, it's tempting to think globally. Yes. Oh, 100%. Yes. The most effect that you will have is locally. Like, it's great to talk about things on a global scale, but all you can do is kind of talk about it. But you can do something here, and you can do something locally. I don't think that that's lesser work. So I'm going to pray, and... Uh, we're going to have a really cool pad going, because we love pads at this, at this church, don't we? Don't we? That's right. We love pads. I'm going to pray, and we're going to enter into worship, and I want, I want like, like I said, like, it's not about being siloed, like, oh, I care about these three things, and Jennifer, she cares about that, so I don't have to care about Jennifer's things. That's not it. But I do think, like, there are many ways in which we see the church in this kind of stained glass image or this body image where we're very interconnected, but there's a lot of differentiation within the community. And I think that comes to the things that break our hearts and the things that bring us to life. And so during worship, I'm going to invite you to come forward and just to write those two or three things that you feel God has put on your heart that are your causes on this piece of paper. And then um, when we leave, you're going to be able to kind of come by and to see it and to see, oh my gosh, there's other people in this community that care about the thing that I care about, but there's people in this community that caring about things that I didn't even know were things. And I hope we see in that diversity as well, like, oh my goodness, God is doing something amazing in this church. So I'm going to pray. Uh, we're going to enter into worship, and then you can kind of come down and share. Father God, I thank you that you have created each person in this room for such a time as this, that none of these people are here by accident, that before the foundations of the universe, you had each one of them in mind, that you crafted them with an amazing set of gifts, of a way of seeing the world, of convictions that enable them to do this very specific work that you have in this moment in history. God, I pray that we would walk about with hearts broken open, but not apart. That our heart brokenness would be that motivation of compassion to do something about the, the brokenness that we see in the world, to feel deeply and profoundly. And I pray also, Lord, that you would give us divine strategies on how to make this work sustainable and long-term, that we would marry contemplation and action, that we would develop plans, that we would not just wait for the next tragedy or the next crisis or the next outcry or the next moment of rage, but that we would be disciplined to do the work when nobody else is looking. We do the work when everybody else has moved on that we would become those kinds of people who are so convinced of your kingdom that we can't not do the work, even if it is in obscurity. So bless us, Lord, as we embark on this journey. Continue to speak to us about 
what it is that you have placed on our hearts. We all this in the strong name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So I invite you to, to come forward when there's space. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.